0: tonight's reading is from Mark 9 verses 14 through 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground." He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. I think this probably ranks in the top 10 for me um, of stories that I find intriguing in the Gospels, and honestly, um, stories that encourage me personally for reasons that we will bring out in, in the text in just a moment. Uh, before I actually open up the Word of God, if you have your Bibles, uh, either as an app or as a print Bible, please open them to Mark chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Uh, this evening. And let's go to the Lord and treat Him to bless our time tonight. Father, we come to You in humble dependence, apart from You. um, We can do nothing. So, Lord, we are asking You to do in and through us what we can't do for ourselves, including understanding and applying the inspired Word of God. Lord, um, You told Your disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, Lord, we live in a culture which seems to be trajecting further and further away from you, and more and more people um, don't understand the gospel. And it's our desire as a church to be salt and to be light in a dark and a decaying world. And Lord, apart from you, we can't do anything. And so, Lord, we are coming to you in humble prayer because we want you to do something that we can't, uh, Lord. Bring glory to yourself in this city, starting in this place and in this room tonight through the preaching of your word. May Christ be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week uh, we are starting a series, Searching for Answers, Encountering Jesus. So for those of you who have friends, you have roommates, uh, people that you go to school with, people that you work with, or maybe even you yourself are not a Christ follower and and, and these individuals, or maybe yourself, are, they have answers, they have questions. We are going to dive into a series which is designed to hit 11 different common questions that everybody is asking, regardless of whether or not they are Christ followers or not. So this is, this is designed specifically for the body of Christ to address the, the questions you have that are life questions, but also the questions your friends and, quite frankly, your enemies uh, they have those same questions. So this is an opportunity for, for those of you in the body, the church, the family of Christ, to, to take advantage of this series as a, as a vehicle to engage our community that doesn't know Christ. It's our desire, if you're a follower of Jesus here, to get connected, to be a disciple, but a fully engaged disciple, not someone who simply attends occasionally, Uh, the downtown service in the evening or comes even every Sunday. But to be involved, to get involved with your community and, and know what it means to trust Christ, know what it means to walk alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage you, but also who can equip you. And you can encourage and equip them to the end, to the end that we would be disciples who then make disciples. So Matthew chapter 16 it's a verse that we're not going to cover today, but it, it gives us an understanding of what Jesus told his disciples he was going to use them for. So the context in Matthew 16 is Jesus is with the uh, disciples in Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan city. It's a pagan city. It's They're not primarily Jewish. And they're kind of the, on the edge of the bubble in, in, uh, up by the Sea of Galilee. And there's a lot of, lot of Gentiles there. And so Jesus asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they answered, well, some say that you're Elijah, and and others say that you're John the Baptist. And and, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And, and, And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Peter, that wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but that's revealed to you from my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you're the rock. You're a rock. And on this church, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here they are. They are, they are, on, they are right outside of a place. Stacey and I, when we were in Israel, we visited this location. And there's a place which they, which they referred to as the gates of hell. It's the, it's the gate to the Gentile community. And so that's where he's speaking these things. And so me being an overly emotional individual, I read and I listen to that and I'm like, go we're gonna charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun and that sounds great until you get up to the gates until you get up to the gates i don't know i'm dating myself but mike tyson famous boxer ex-heavyweight champ said everybody has a plan when they step in the ring until they get punched in the face everything sounds awesome about being a disciple and advancing the gospel for the cause of Jesus. And the gates of hell aren't going to prevail until you get up to the gate. And what we see in Mark 9 is the disciples coming right up to the gate and getting punched right in the mouth. Now, Mark doesn't record this, but I believe Luke does that they were overpowered physically by this young guy. They were literally getting punched in the mouth, at the gates of hell. And they were not prevailing. So what we are going to do this evening is look at this text and we are going to ask the Lord and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit and ask the Father the same thing as the disciples ask. How do you deal with this kind? How do you deal with this kind? So that 's the problem now the text here we are in math, or in, in, in Mark chapter nine, and let me give you some, uh, some background in terms of why i 'm choosing this text and why it means so much to me. Two thousand and six, I was listening to a desiring God national pastors conference, and the context or the subject matter of this entire conference uh, was how do you reach a postmodern culture? With the gospel. Now, for those of you who are not sure what postmodern means, modernity is the period after the Enlightenment where everyone figured that, you know what, we can figure out truth just by the scientific method, method and, and rational, uh, just using human reason. And so, now, someone who is, is modern in that context, not modern in terms of your technology and which cell phone or iPhone you have, but modern in that sense, believed that truth could be discovered, and there was such a thing as truth, and we used the scientific method to discover it. That was so 1970s actually 1950s. We've moved way beyond that. We are now postmodern. Postmodern people don't believe that truth is a thing that can be determined, but rather each and all of us, we determine our own truth, what works for us, our own identities, who we want to be. And there's no such thing as really truth. Truth is relative. It's for each individual to discover for themselves. So your truth is different from my truth, and and my truth is different from your truth. But we all have truths, and they might contradict flatly, but it doesn't matter because there's no such thing as truth. That's postmodernism. That's the world we live in today. Today. And so this conference was how, as followers of Christ, up against this new gate, how do we move forward and make disciples who then make disciples? How do we fulfill the Great Commission to a generation that doesn't believe in truth? And Tim Keller delivered a message That's called The Supremacy of Christ in the Gospel in a Postmodern World. And he he used this passage and he was quoting, I always quote Tim Keller because he's one of my favorite preachers, but he, he was quoting his favorite preacher, which was Martin Lloyd Jones, who preached on this same text in 1959. Now, let me give you the background. The background's important. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this text about the demon-possessed boy and the disciples' disciples' failure to be able to cast this this demon out on 1959 because it was the 100-year anniversary of the Welsh revival, which occurred in 1859 during the Second Great Awakening, which occurred both on the North American continent and in Europe where thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, millions even came to Christ. But the Welsh Revival was was localized in Great Britain, and thousands of people simultaneously came to Christ during an age when there was great apathy in the church, and great debauchery. And so, let me explain, let me just read for you Keller quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones from the 2006 Desiring God Conference. Martin Lloyd-Jode says, Here in this boy I see the modern world. And in the disciples I see the church of God. And I see a very great difference between today, remember this is 1959 when this is being delivered, I see a very great difference today and 200 years ago, or indeed even 100 years ago. The difficulty in those earlier times was that men and women... We're in a state of apathy. They were more or less asleep. There was no general denial of the Christian truth. It was just that people didn't trouble to practice it. All you had to do then was to awaken them and to rouse them. But the question is whether or not that's still the position. What is this kind? This kind of problem facing us today is altogether deeper and more desperate. The very belief in God is virtually gone. The average man today believes that all this belief about God and religion and salvation is an incubus on human nature all through the centuries. It's no longer merely a question of immorality. This has become an amoral or a non-moral society the very category of morality is not recognized. And Keller goes on to quote him and he basically categorizes our own generation this is 2016 so this is you know a number of years ago and he's, and here's the here's the here's where we're at. People the demon is deeper. We are not trying to preach the gospel in a culture that believes that truth is something that can be discovered that has an overarching cultural understanding that there is a monotheistic God and this God exists and will stand before him someday. We're not making disciples in a culture that has a personal understanding that sin is a thing and that judgment is a thing. That's not the world we live in anymore. The demon is deeper. Evangelism and disciple making is extremely difficult in our culture. What Jones was saying, there used to be a day when the role of the church was simply just to awaken people to what they already kind of had in the background of their mind was true, but they weren't practicing it. The demon is in fact deeper. So, let's take a look at the text here. So we're in verse, verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now let's stop there. They're surprised by their failure. True? Why? Why would they be surprised at their failure? Because earlier they'd experienced so much success. So turn in your Bibles to to Luke chapter 10. This is... uh, Jesus training up the 12 and uh, the larger group of disciples that were starting to gather around him. And so Jesus sends out the 72. Let's take a look at verse 5 of chapter 10. He says, whatever house you enter, he sends out the 72. I'm going to back it up. The harvest is plentiful. This is verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, and no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, you'll return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Here it is heal the sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust in your own town clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day than for Sodom, than for that town. So Jesus is telling, I want you to go to the Jewish people. Not the Gentiles. That's, we're not ready for that. Just go to the Jews, and I want you to preach that the kingdom of God is here. And I want you to heal. Now, now, Matthew also records that Jesus says, I want you to heal, and I want you to cast out demons. I want you to demonstrate with power that the kingdom of God has come against the forces of evil. And they do. Now, pick it up in, uh, in verse 17. In verse 17, chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall Like lightning from heaven, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. So the disciples had a task, and they were very successful in that task up until this point. Up until they got near the gates and they got punched right in the mouth. And they're asking, What'd we do wrong? Why is why weren't we able to do it? Now, what does Jesus say? This kind can come only out by prayer and fasting. The demon's deeper. The demon is deeper. So in our context, we're not the 72 that were sent out by Jesus to the the, the tribes of Israel. We are Modern day disciples following other disciples who made disciples earlier, who had made disciples earlier, because they're following the great commission where Jesus told the disciples as he ascended into heaven, Go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. That's our commission. That's our commission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us that, that, uh, that we are new creations in Christ, verse 17. The old is gone. Behold, all things have been made new. And we've been reconciled to God, Him not counting our sins against us. And He's given us the message of reconciliation as if God is making His appeal through us to the world. And then that's where Paul says, therefore... We, you and I, all of us, everybody in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, and if you're not, it doesn't apply to you, but if you are, Paul says, we're his ambassadors. And for the last 2,000 years, you've seen the church grow, and it's still growing. And you've seen the church, what what do we call our culture? It's a Judeo-Christian culture. Or is it? That would have been true 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but that's becoming less and less true. So you saw the church, the body of Christ, expand and have great influence, and I'm only speaking in terms of Western civilization. I'm not talking about South Africa or uh, South America. I'm not talking about uh, Africa. I'm not talking about the Asian continent. I'm talking about Western civilization. By and large, you see, you've seen, the church have success in advancing the gospel. The methods over the past 200 years here in the United States. Everybody has a framework of who Jesus is, what sin is. There's a God. We're going to stand before this God and give an account. And so the church, by and large, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the goal is to just help them understand what they kind of already knew but don't yet believe. Right? And so the church, you just build a church. Old brick. When was old brick built? Jason, I know I'm putting you on the spot. 1856. So you just build this old Presbyterian church and, and people are going to come. And they did. And they did. So it's the Field of Dreams model. If you build it, they will come. And so people would come. People would come and they would hear the preaching of the Word. And they would, the Spirit would move and, and they would come to Christ. He would come to Christ. And, and then over time, uh, different evangelism methods were developed. You had the crusade model developed and established by D.L. Moody during the Second Great Awakening, around the time of the Civil War. And then that was perfected by Billy Graham, where you'd have stadiums full of non-Christians and Christians. And, and these people would hear the gospel, and they would come to Christ. And then later, you had Bill Bright... The founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now crew, and and he would he developed the four spiritual laws and then Dawson Trotman who after him, the founder of Navigators, and and all these different parachurch organizations that would specialize on helping disciples make disciples who made disciples. And this, this is how you share the gospel. Here's the, the four laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and then in the 90s was the, was the ray, all the rage was the seeker-sensitive church where you, where, where, where you make church more accessible or comfortable for someone who's non-church to enter into. And, and you saw the rise of the megachurch. But the demon is deeper. The demon is deeper. We've come up against the gate. From nineteen thirty-seven to nineteen ninety-eight in America, church membership remained at at a, a level and a consistent consistent level. Seventy percent of Americans were members of a church. Where they would where if they were asked being involved in a local church is extremely important to me 70% of all americans said that from 1937 to 1998 that's incredibly significant 1998 to 2018 that number went from 70% to less than 50% that is historically significant now some of you are not statistics people for those of you who are that's 20% drop that's unbelievable and so the number of people that, that value their faith is dropping, and simultaneously another demographic is growing, especially among generation Z, your generation. some of you. And that is, that is a group called the Nuns. Some of you are confused. I thought you said people were trending away from religion. Why would all these women be joining? No, we're not talking about wearing habits. Not, n u n, n o n e, s. So on the on the on the on the census, what is your religious affiliation? None. One quarter of Americans identify as none, atheist or agnostic. And that is trending extremely quickly, especially in the younger generations. Why does it matter? How many of you are familiar with crew? Lots of you. Some of you are on staff, right? Got lots of people with Athletes in Action and crew here. uh, Remember the four laws back in the day? I remember when I first started college ministry, I, I would open up the four laws and I would take people through that. And I would see fruitfulness. Four laws, number one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now you're sitting down with a nun and you sit down for coffee and you want them to come to Jesus and so you open up the four laws. God loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life. And what do you hear? I don't believe in God. You don't go to law number two. But nevertheless, you've been trained by crew, so you're going to press through in the 90s. You're trained by crew in the 90s, and you're going to press through because you got to get through the end. You say, well, never mind that. Let's go to law number two. That we've all sinned and fallen short of glory of God, and our sin separates us from God. What is sin? Do you understand that... That, that people in our generation, this new generation, and even people that are as old as me, it is becoming more and more common that people do not believe that there is a God, that they're here by blind chance and accident. Therefore, because there's no, there's no God, there is no law, there is no lawgiver, there is no right, there is no wrong. So we determine our own truth. So it's pointless to talk about sin and responsibility. The demon is deeper. <laughs> and we're looking at Jesus like, how come our, how come no one's coming to Jesus? Now some of you are like, now wait a minute, you're being just a tad harsh. Now, I do tend to be somewhat cynical. I think I'm more of a realist, but sometimes I can lean towards cynical, right? So some of you might be thinking, Brooks, I, there's a lot of churches which are growing and they're seeing success. People are coming to Christ. Don't dispute that. But let's just examine who's coming to Christ. Let's examine who's filling the churches. 70% now it's less than 50%. That's a 20, it's over 20 Yeah, but there's individual churches that are still growing. Yeah, Grace Grace is one of them. So Grace, I started coming to Grace in 1988 with Stacey and I. It was Grace Baptist Church in the day. We met in Coraville. There were about 70 people. And I became a Christian, and then Grace eventually moved out to North Liberty, bought a piece of land, and then it was 200 people. And then it was 400 people, and then it was 800 people. And then it was 1,300 people on a Sunday. And then we planted a downtown church, and here it's growing, and it's, people are coming, right? Who's coming? Who's coming? Let's just have a non-scientific survey here. Who is the church primarily reaching? The first group of people that the church is most, and I say primarily, not exclusively, but primarily the church reaches Christians who have moved into the area. Raise your hand if you were already a Christian before you came to this local church. There you go. That's most of us. Now that's not a bad thing. I'm not going to beat up the church for how dare you provide a place of worship for people that come to the University of Iowa. That's not making disciples. It is making disciples. You're disciples and we want to shepherd you. We want to equip you. And and that's a good thing. Second group of people is Christians who are dissatisfied with their current church in the local area so they move to another church. Please don't raise your hand if you're in that category. I don't, don't really want to know. But I, I know that over the years as, as the lead pastor Grace that we've seen a lot of people come to Grace that were disenfranchised by their local church here in the Iowa City area. Now sometimes that's not a bad thing because sometimes you leave a church because doctrinally that church no longer preaches the gospel or they don't believe the truth of God's word. But sometimes it has nothing to do with that. Sometimes it has more to do with the fact that the people just don't like the programs, or they had a fight with this person, or so forth and so on. And so we've seen lots of people do that. In fact, over the last two years, year and a half with COVID, we've seen hundreds of people leave grace, and they don't call grace their church anymore. Why? Well, for various reasons. Amongst them were the way we responded to COVID. We didn't open early enough. We made people wear masks. So they left. So A lot of church growth in individual churches is Christians moving into the area or Christians leaving one church to go to another church. Third group of people, third group of people are those who were raised in the church but who are not yet Christians. How many of you were here last week for Haley's testimony and her baptism? Absolutely fabulous. Brought me to tears. Of course, most things bring me to tears. Anytime someone comes to Jesus and they tell the story, I'm going to cry. So she tells her story, and it was very similar to my wife's story. But here's, you remember Haley's story? I was, I grew up going to church, but I did not know or have a personal relationship with Christ. I came to, to the University of Iowa, I, I, I drifted into the sorority life, I felt lonely, I felt isolated, I was trying to please everyone, I was trying to perform and win my, everyone's approval by my performance. And then I got invited to a Bible study. And Olivia began to disciple me and began to show me what the Scripture said and boom! Then I met Jesus. She had all of the furniture already in the house. She just needed to have Olivia over to help organize the chairs. This was... And, and, and the Holy Spirit used Olivia, used the body of Christ. It's no less miraculous for someone like Haley to come to Christ than anyone to come to Christ. But understand that she, was, she had all, the, all of the, the intellectual framework to understand the gospel. Now some of you are like, yeah, Brooks, I've heard you give your testimony. You don't fit any of those categories. Now, I've never been to church my whole life until I came to the University of Iowa. Three years in, Stacey invited me to church never read a Bible. The first Bible I ever owned was one of those little green Gideon's New Testaments. They still pass those out. You know, the old guys? They come out there and they hand you. I had three of those for each semester or each year I was at Iowa before I actually opened one. So, but I, but here, I would refer to people like myself. Actually, I'm borrowing this phrase from, uh, uh, from Tim Keller who I think borrowed it from Dorothy Sayers. Christ haunted. Here's what a Christ-haunted person is. A Christ-haunted person is someone who has a Judeo-Christian worldview minus Jesus. I already believed that there was a God. I believed that sin was a real thing and I believed that I would someday have to stand before this God. And I actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God, although I had no idea what that meant. Where, pray tell, would I gather all of that information having never been to church or been read a Bible? Where? I soaked it in from the Judeo-Christian culture. I was brought up in. I was Christ-haunted. So when I began to become convicted of my own sin and my own immorality, and I actually had a Bible and I started coming to church, it clicked. It clicked. I was Christ-haunted. But the demon is deeper now. My kids got me uh, and Stacy hooked on a show called Clarkson's Farm. Have you, s- you seen that? Yes! Some enthusiasts in the very back. So for those two people who have seen it, they'll appreciate the illustration. For the rest of you, just wait. So in this, Jeremy Clarkson, he's a British TV personality. Uh, he used to be, I think, Top Gear was his big thing. And then he was Regis Philbin of uh, Britain. With who wants to be a millionaire, and so he's got all sorts of money and all sorts of time on his hands, and and he has a thousand acres in the middle of Great Britain, and it was farmed for years and years and years. And the person who was farming it decided they didn't want to farm anymore. And so he's like, How hard can it be? I'll farm it. Of course I'll have a TV crew with me the whole time, and we'll make it into a reality TV show. And it is absolute gold. It's he's really trying to make a go of this farming thing. And it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And so, in one particular episode, he's rewilding part of his property. He's making a pond. He wants to attract all sorts of white, wet life. And, and so, he digs out this, uh, digs out this pond and then, then he diverts a creek into, into the pond. And he's got his right hand man, whom he refers to lovingly as Fetus, because his name is Caleb and he's a 21 year old, and, and he just makes fun of him all the time. But without this guy, he'd be sunk. This guy knows farming, he knows equipment, he, he walks him through everything. And so Caleb is standing there and they dig out this, this trench and the water starts to come in and Jeremy Clarkson says, Behold, Moses! And Caleb said, Who the blank is Moses? And Jeremy looks at Caleb and says, Moses! You know, the leader of the Jewish people when they were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, and God called him, he saw him in a burning bush, and God said, I want you to go, and I want you to deliver my people out of, out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so Moses, he goes, and he comes before Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh says, no. And then, and then Moses, God uses Moses, and all these, these 10 plagues, they come, and, and, and then, and then God, uh, God delivers them, and, and all of the people of Israel leave Egypt, and they come up to the banks of the, the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit and there's a, a pillar of fire to prevent them from coming and then Moses stands on the banks of the Red Sea and he says, behold the outstretched hand of God. This is Charlton Heston, less more than the Bible. But, and now, now the waters pile up on both sides and Israel goes through the Red Sea to dry land. And Caleb, the camera pans over to Caleb and he says, that's blank, blank. That's B.S how do you not know who Moses is? I was talking with, uh, with Zach Stanton, our worship leader downtown, and we were talking, having this conversation. He said he, he read an article, and I looked it up, and it was 2009 Reuters article, that, that college professors that teach English literature are having fits. Why? Because intelligent Students who have scored high on the ACT and high on the SAT are coming in and they can't understand English literature because English literature is built on a foundation of Judeo-Christian culture. In specific, they have no idea what to do with Milton's Paradise Lost. Why? Because their highly intelligent students don't know who Adam and Eve are. The demon is deeper. The demon is deeper. So, how many of you were depressed? Anybody, anybody there yet? Okay, that was the goal. I, my goal was to get you to a place where you and I, we would be like the disciples, a little bit bloodied, a little bit beaten up, a little bit scared, a little bit intimidated, and so that we would be able to say, I don't know what to do. Back to Mark chapter 9. Back to Mark chapter 9. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast, cast it out? What's Jesus say? You tell me. What's it say? This kind comes out only by what? Prayer. All right. Who prayed? Who prayed? Did the disciples pray? Uh, no. No, they didn't pray. Now, it's assumed Jesus prayed, right? If you said, well, Jesus prayed, you'd always be right. You get a gold star. Everybody gets a gold star if we say Jesus prayed. But does he pray in this text that we can see? No. He doesn't pray. Mark doesn't record that Jesus prayed. You know what? Luke records this story. Luke doesn't record that Jesus prayed. You know what? Matthew records this story. Matthew doesn't record that Jesus prayed. Who prayed? The dad. The dad. Look at the text again. Look at the text. Back it up. So let's take a look at verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, cried out. Cried out is not, and he said. Cried out is, there's emotion. There's pathos here. There's desperation in his voice. What's he say? What's he say? He says, ah, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. That's the prayer. Do you know why I find this the most encur- one of the most encouraging stories in the New Testament? Because what what it reveals here about the heart of the Father is He's drawn to weak people. He's drawn to weak people who have their backs up against the wall, who have been punched in the mouth, and who have absolutely no hope. This prayer, this prayer is a combination of desperation and hope. Desperation and hope. I do believe... Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the kind of posture that you and I as disciples of Christ have to take if we are going to fulfill the Great Commission and be used of God in a culture where the demon is deeper. If we take any other posture than this, we will suffer the same experience the disciples experienced. We'll get pummeled. We're already getting pummeled. Our culture mocks Christianity, increasingly so. I saw a brand new bumper sticker I'd never seen just this Friday. You know the little Ixthus bumper sticker, right? I follow Jesus, here's an Ixthus. By the way, I'm I'm not mocking you if you have an excuse on your car. Well, I guess I just did, but so anyway, sorry. But then some clever individual a number of years ago drew feet on that, and of course that I follow. And then Darwin is in the center of that, and you're like, oh well, good for you. You're you're an atheist. Mm. All right, and then and that and now the one I saw last week was, it's got a, a, the fish symbol, but all sorts of little feet, but a Viking hat and a spear. And the excuse of Jesus is impaled. And it says Odin. That's a new one. Our culture is not just apathetic towards Christianity. It's becoming hostile towards Christianity. The demon is deeper. The demon is deeper. So what do we do? It's a question. I don't know. Does Jesus mean what he... Does, Jesus says, does he say what he means and mean what he says? Yes or no? Yes, he does. So what, what does he say? I tell you the truth. I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are, are we the church? Is this the church? Are we a representation of the body of Christ in Iowa City, Iowa? On the most secular part, place in, in, in the state of Iowa. Are we the body of Christ? Do you experience culturally the gates of hell in our culture? Can those gates prevail against the body of Christ? Yes or no. If Jesus is saying, if he's truthful. No. But they seem to be. So what do we do? Oh, Lord, I believe. But, you know, sometimes I don't. I believe up until I'm at the, at the gate. And then, ah. Uh, some of you, you have brothers or sisters or maybe even children who are prodigals, and you relate to the Father. I do believe, God, that you can bring my brother, sister in Christ back, or my child to you, but I don't know that you will. Some of you are self-loathing addicts. You've told the Lord a thousand times you're not going to jump back into porn or you're not going to crawl back into a bottle, a booze, but you do. And you have been you've been told that God loves you, but in your heart you're like, I do believe, but I just don't. I know that God could change me, but I don't think he's going to. And here we are. Everybody everybody here knows someone who you know God could save them, but you don't really believe that he will. So, before we close in prayer, I'm going to give you a a prayer assignment. For you personally, just you. You can write these down. Two things. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer that this father prayed. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Number one. Number one. What is it that you personally, that you personally... As a follower of Christ, you do believe about the gospel. But when push comes to shove, um, no. At least sometimes. You've, you've been told time in and time out that God loves you. Do you believe that God loves you when you are at your worst? Some of you are like, I believe God loves me. I just don't think he likes me. Okay. Okay. Do you believe God desires to be in your presence? Or do you only believe that God loves you when you are on top of your game morally? The gospel teaches that God cannot love you more. He'll never love you less regardless of your debauchery. I know that's radical. I know that's radical. But we do believe it sometimes until we've fallen. And then we're like, I don't know. I just don't see how it could be true. Do you believe that God could use you? God says that he's given you his Holy Spirit and he's given you a gift. Well, technically, I guess I have to believe. You get the idea. What is it that you know is intellectually true about the gospel for you, but you just struggle to grab a hold of it? I would challenge you every day this week, go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I believe it, but you know, I don't. Would you help me overcome my unbelief? Come to him with your weakness. He's drawn to weakness. He's drawn to weakness. And then lastly, who do you believe? Who do you know? And who do you believe that God could save, but he probably won't? Your roommate? A child? A friend? A coworker? Someone you go to school with? A teammate? Yeah, you know God can save anybody, but he's probably not going to save this one. Why not? Why not? Well, they're just, the demon's deeper in them. They're different. They're, they're, you know, they're not just apathetic towards Christianity. They're hostile. So? I remember in 1998, I went to uh, the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. It was the National Day of Prayer. It was in Cedar Rapids. And the guest speaker was ex-Hawkeye linebacker, ex-NFL linebacker, Wally Hilgenberg. Wally Hilgenberg played for the University of Iowa in the 1960s. He graduated in 1964 and went on to play for 12 years for the Detroit Lions and then I think four more years for the Minnesota Vikings. My dad played football here at the University of Iowa with Wally Hilgenberg. He was an all-pro many, many years. Many, many years. And so he was giving his testimony at the, uh, at the, at the mayor's prayer breakfast. And I remember I called up my dad afterwards. I said, Dad! You played football with Wally Hilgenberg, right? Yeah, I played football with Wally Hilgenberg. Yeah, I heard him. He gave his testimony. He's a follower of Christ now. Quote, unquote, Gary Simpson. Wally Hilgenberg's a Christian. It has something to do with money. Really? Now, I heard the rest of the story in the testimony. Here's what Wally Hilgenberg's testimony starts with. When I came to Christ in 1977 this is who I was. My wife was praying for me and I wanted nothing to do with this Christianity. But there was a Bible study the Minnesota Vikings were having and I used to look at those guys and think they were the weakest guys on the team and I had no respect for those individuals. And then one day one season in 1976 they decided they took a vote who's the least likely guy on the team to come to Christ? And they all voted for me. So they set it in their hearts to pray every day that I would come to Christ. And then in 1977, the last year of my NFL career, with my marriage in shambles, I walked into the room where they were having a Bible study and I said, Can I join you? I came to Christ in 1988. I came on staff here in 1997, and I started working with college students, just like many of you. And I knew nothing about ministry, so I went up and I talked to a guy named Ed Luby at UNI, who was running a ministry with Navigators called BASIC. And they were having hundreds and hundreds, 500, 600, 700 kids come to this, this, uh, this, this event. And they were discipling kids and people were coming to Christ. And I was meeting with him. I was like, I want to know how this works. And so he's, we're talking and this and that. And he says, oh, you're from Newton. I said, yeah. He goes, well, one of the guys that's on staff from us is from Newton, Shannon Sanquist. Oh, yeah, I know Shannon. I graduated in 85. He graduated in 83. Tell Shannon I said hello. Okay, see ya. Talking to Ed a couple months, a couple weeks later and talking ministry. And he says, oh yeah, Shannon, I told him that I met with you. So yeah, I met with Brooke Simpson. He's a pastor in Iowa City. I said, what did he say? He says, well, that it's not the Brooke Simpson I know. You see, the Brooks I know, he's not a pastor. It must be a different guy named Brooke Simpson. He says, the, the one that wrestles. Well, yeah, but Brooks wouldn't be a pastor. Of course, Brooks wouldn't be a pastor. (laughs) Apart from the sovereign grace of God, who's the least likely person you know where the demon is entrenched? It could be your child, it could be your brother, it could be your spouse, it could be a boyfriend, it could be a girlfriend, it could be a roommate, it could be a professor. Bring them before the Lord and say, Lord, I believe that you could heal I can believe I believe you could save them. I just don't believe that you're going to. Would you help me overcome my unbelief? And would you use me somehow and allow me to see your work on this campus? You know, everything is unprecedented once, right? Everything is unprecedented at once. Peter preaches at Pentecost. Who is Peter preaching to? The city that nailed Jesus to the cross 50 days ago. 3,000 people come to Christ. Everything happens for the first time once. Yes, it's never happened that you see revival in a post-Christian culture until it happens. So yeah, the demon's deeper. But your God is greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We are undeserving of it, but you are so good. Lord, if there's someone here right now and their main struggle is not whether or not their friend can come to Christ, but the fact that they question whether your love for them could be real because they're so far, so far entrenched in their own sin. Lord, would you show them that no demon is too deep? even the personal demons that people struggle with here, that your love, Lord, was demonstrated for them that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross. Would you remind us? Would you encourage us? Would you draw yourself to us? And Lord, help us to believe the truth of your word, Lord, that greater is in us and he was in the world. Help us to be overcomers. Help us to believe in you and help us to overcome our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.